Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 117 with my guest, Dr. Michael Sebahar. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. What are you, a jackass? It's a waiting room that hopefully doesn't suck. I'm not good at, at, at mixing things up and throwing new shit in there because then I forget what the next thing is that I'm supposed to say. The website for this show is uh, mesopod.com. Please go there, uh, join the forum, post on it, uh, take a survey, see how other people responded to surveys, um, join the, uh, sign up for the newsletter, um, buy something through our Amazon link, donate to the show, or just stare at the homepage and fuck yourself. How's that? How's that grab you right out of the gate? I'm coming out swinging. Um, what did I want to say? Day six of, um... Uh, what is this new med that I'm on? The fuck is it called? Lamictal. I'm I'm tapering up, so I'm on just uh, 25 milligrams, and uh, I've got that feeling that I think so many of you uh, who have been trying to treat your depression for years know where your fingers are crossed, and you're like, in six weeks, will I feel better? Because it usually takes like anywhere from, depending on the med, anywhere from. Uh, a couple of weeks to to like eight weeks for uh, for you to feel anything, and uh, that's always so disappointing when you get to the eight week or the twelve week mark, and you're like, oh, "Guess this one doesn't work." Back to the drawing board. But um, I've been through this before, 
and I'm sure I will go through it again, and I'm just trying to be patient and gentle with myself, not beat myself up for uh, sleeping 10, sometimes 12 hours a day, and uh, trying to be grateful, actually, that I have a life where uh, on some days I can I can sleep that, that long or that late. So um, let's dive into it. I want to read an email that I got um, from a woman who calls herself Fan. Um, she says, hi, Paul. I'm a big fan, but heard something disturbing on episode 115 with Ashley. You both just get through talking about how there are serious social drivers for disproportionate male violence, etc., related to men not being able to find socially acceptable emotional outlets. Totally true, totally fine. Which is why I was surprised when you threw women under the bus in the next sentence. Right after that, you go on to say that every misogynist you've ever met has had a domineering mother. Essentially, you're blaming women for sexism against women. A very sexist thing to do. Sure, you're sharing your anecdotal evidence, but if we're not supposed to think that means something about how misogynists are made, then why share it at all? Um, uh, I was really disappointed to hear that and heard that you go on to claim uh, you now see women as your sisters after you essentially just blame them for their own subjugation. Uh, I think of your podcast as a great place for people to learn things, which is why I felt the need to send this to you. It makes me sad to hear things like that on a usually forward-thinking podcast. Um, and to that, I would uh, say that was that was not my um, intention. That that was I was speaking partially. What I normally say when I posit that theory that I have is that domineering mothers were usually raised by a father that abandoned them or objectified them in some way, and it's all a part of the cycle of abuse. I don't think anything happens in a vacuum. I think anybody that abuses or mistreats somebody, usually themselves, was was mistreated or abused, and who knows where the fuck it started. And to be honest, I think if you were to keep a tally of... Um, one sex mistreating the other, I think a lot more men would be uh, guilty for mistreating women than women mistreating men because I think classically um, men take tend to uh, take it out in outwardly aggressive ways and I think women tend to eternalize it in way, ways that involve um, self-abuse and, and self-hatred. So um, that freaked me out when I read this because that is not at all what... Uh, what I think and I just thought about how many other people that might have heard that and thought that that I lost as listeners so you can imagine the fucking panic spiral I went into but I guess that's one of the risks you take when you when you do a, a podcast is that you're not going to completely finish a thought and it's going to be misinterpreted um, and uh, people wind up thinking the the opposite of of what your real what your real point is one of the things I do I do take pride in about this podcast though is talking about the ways that when they do abuse um males uh the ways that the females do it because i don't think it's it's covered very often and it was something i was not even aware of until i was in my 20s and i and i feel like that's a, a dark corner that needs light shown on it and so i also hope that if i tend to disproportionately talk about those instances on the podcast it's not interpreted as me saying this is what's wrong with society this is the major cause that I, and that's why i'm showing it it's just that i don't think it gets covered as much um because it's not as prevalent as the as the reverse but um no i'm just repeating myself 
Anyway, this next uh, email is from a guy who calls himself D, and he says, I recently severed all ties with my brother due to his untreated mental illness. I have my own problems that I'm in therapy for, and I don't need his added stress. My parents, on the other hand, feel I should just forgive him for telling me that he wants me to, quote, die in a fire. If this was the only time something like this had happened, It would be different, but he consistently crosses the line with everybody in his life when he gets mad and says horrible things. Growing up, he also had anger issues that he would sometimes take out on me. So because of the history, I told my parents that I will not have any contact with him until he seeks professional help. He is not healthy for me. The reason why I'm telling you this is because I know you have severed your relationship with your mom. How does your family feel about that, and do they try to get you to talk to her again? Um, Well, my only family is... Uh, really, my my brother and my uh, and my cousin, who was raised with us, and neither of them had have made me um, feel bad about that. Neither of them have tried me to um, get me to talk to her again. And I don't know if I've severed my relationship with her as much as I've taken a a, a break um, that I don't know where it's it's going. Um, I'm I don't know if I can ever completely write somebody off. There's moments when I when I think to myself, um, I'm never going to have any contact with her again. And there's moments when I think, um, maybe maybe it could be in the in the same room with her, uh, you know, sometime in the future, um, because we change, you know, as we as we heal and we process all that stuff that was so painful when it first came up, it begins to feel a little bit different. So that's kind of that's kind of where I am about that. And the reason I wanted to read your emails because I want to applaud you for setting boundaries with your with your brother you, you know if your brother doesn't want to help himself um you shouldn't <laughs> i don't know what my dog is doing behind me but uh he's doing a reverse sneeze um if your brother doesn't want to help himself um i think it makes total sense to protect yourself from him even if your brother is getting help and he's still being abusive towards you you still have the right to to, to protect yourself until you feel safe to give it another shot or maybe maybe even not um, I hope the people who listen to this and are the loved ones of people suffering from mental illness realize that um, giving consequences to people that aren't getting help for themselves can be the most loving thing that you can do sometimes because sometimes that's what it takes for them to wake up and go, hey, I, you know, I got a fucking problem here and I need to do something about it instead of just lashing out at everybody because my emotions are overwhelming. All right, this next one is um, from a, a, a survey that doesn't get fil- filled out very often. It's um, the survey called Young Male Abused by Older Female. And it was filled out by a woman who calls herself Marley Moo. She um, writes, I was 28 and I took advantage of him at 18 years old. He was a virgin and I was just lonely. Um, I never told anyone, though it was legal and consensual, I do feel that I took advantage of him because he was so underexperienced and innocent. Um, remembering these things, what feelings come up, she writes, I hope that what I caused to happen doesn't hurt him now. Um, do you feel any damage was done? She writes, I'm not sure. Uh, I surely hope not. Um, and then she writes, I've never, ever thought about anyone that was underage, ever. I have seen some fellas that were 18 to 20 that I would slightly fantasize about. I am 33 now. Uh, I think the most disturbing thing in this survey is that you use the word fellas. And I think that outweighs all of these other by about a thousand to one. Um, I don't see anything wrong with um, 
a, a 20, what were you, 28? And he was 18. Um, you know, it's legal, it's consensual. So what if he's underexperienced and innocent? It was, you know, it was, it was probably exciting for that guy, you know, unless you got a vibe from him that he was freaking out or he seemed like he shut down or froze up or, you know, he started to cry or something. You know, that's, fuck, that's just a part part of the human experience in my in my mind. But let's get back to this this disturbing use of the word fellas. Did you just fall off of a turnip truck? You're 33 years old, so you were born. Your parents shouldn't even been using the word fellas. <laughs> I want to get to the bottom of this, Marley Moo. I want you to email me, and I want to find out what happened in your life that made you resort to using the word fellas, because I don't see this going anyplace good. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. You go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Mike Sebahar, my my best friend in the in the whole wide world. We've been friends since 1982 or 83. We were roommates in college, um, and uh, we're actually on vacation uh, together. We're we're skiing um, a couple hours north of uh, of Los Angeles, and um, I decided to bring the gear because I was like, you know, I. Th- I I think Mike would be a good guest, even though there's nothing dramatic in your in your story. Um, you're a seeker. You're, and I think those make the most interesting guests are the people that, um, when they're met with a challenge, they really kind of search not only outside themselves but kind of inside themselves for what's the b- best way to handle this situation, and. Um, you're you're one of those people, so thanks for uh, thanks for being on here. It's great to be here, Gilly. Um, Mike is a interventional pain uh, doctor. Tell tell the listeners um, what horse shit this is that you do for for a living. <laughs> well, I want to clarify for the record: we've been friends since '81. Well, we we met each other in '81, but you and I didn't get to be friends until 82 we were a little prickly at first yeah i, think. Yeah. I, don't, th- I don't think i liked you very much yeah. we, mike and i were a, met through both being in a fraternity which makes both of us roll our eyes because it was strictly a place for us to drink beer and meet girls and all of the ceremony and the self-importance that a lot of people they were like our big targets, the guys that took the fraternity experience seriously. And 
and we got out of there pretty quick. Would we live there like two years, and then we're like, "This is we're done with this." I think we, uh, yeah, we got out of there. Actually, I think we made it three years. The third year was brutal, but we were definitely the deviants of the house. There were a couple situations where <laughs> we uh, could have potentially been uh, harmed very seriously had people found out the pranks we pulled. Yeah, um, I remember in particular one one. Uh, I was on the track to be a. Uh, a doctor as as well and mike was actually the person that talked me into trying out for the stand-up competition which then inspired me to change my major to theater um but we had both when i was still pre-med i think we were sophomores and we had had a particularly brutal course load of all these pre-med classes and and you and i I think we're one of the last people in the house to have our finals. So we were, I think, the only two people left in the house. Everybody had already left for, for winter break. And you and I lived in this little shitty dark room that had this hideous hanging lamp. I don't know if it was like paper mache or do you remember that lamp? It was just, mm-hmm. It was just ugly, but neither of us had ever said, God damn it, that is a fucking ugly thing hanging down in the middle of this room. But Mike and I decided to blow off steam that we do mushrooms. So we do mushrooms, and we're sitting in our room, and we start laughing about something. And I can't remember, I had my hockey equipment in there, and we both had one of, we each had a hockey stick, and we're like, suddenly it dawned on us how much we hated that fucking lamp. And we both just started beating this lamp with my hockey sticks like it was a pinata. <laughs> we started laughing so hard, we didn't want it to stop. So the next thing we looked for was things that we could destroy in the house. I don't know what we were thinking, how we were thinking we were going to get away with this. But I, the next thing I remember is we had found somebody's set of weights and we were throwing weights through walls like they were like it was a discus seeing who could make a bigger hole in a wall and it was like it was like this almost like this orgasmic release of all of this pent up studying and pressure and i don't i don't know do you what do you what do you remember about that well yeah not a lot <laughs> we were pretty but i do up. remember tearing walls down and literally doubling the size of that room and i re- i remember uh yeah we paid later but uh uh yeah that was that was quite a uh that was quite a night uh i think we did engage one guy there was a six foot five guy who was still in the house with us and i remember him clawing at the walls with his hands uh, yeah, first name was Conrad. Oh, yeah. And he was around, and uh, he, he got into the act, so we weren't the only ones. We oh, definitely okay. tapped into some energy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But Mike- and another great, great time was when the, whole, the entire frat house was out front getting their picture taken, mm-hmm. and that was the days of IZOD, so everybody was all prepped out. It was our mm-hmm. formal house picture. Do you remember this? And you and I were kind of getting pretty cynical about the house. We needed to leave, yeah. and we went up in the, the top front bedroom, third <laughs> floor, yeah. and, and dumped water on everybody simultaneously as the picture was being snapped, <laughs> and 85 guys turn around and just infiltrate the house looking for us looking for us <laughs> and somehow to this day i don't know how we were not found <laughs> it was i remember literally being terrified like it would it, you know our life would not end but it would be just short of that <laughs> yeah um 
What, uh, what, what else do you remember about uh, anything in particular about the, the, the college experience that, that kind of stands out? I, I, I still have a picture tucked away in a box of you nude on my sailboat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think my current wife is on the boat with you. <laughs> I remember. It was the three of us went out sailing. And I was like, you guys mind if I nude up? <laughs> Because I think uh, I need to be on the front of this boat nude on this beautiful summer day. And you're like, yeah. go for it. I tucked that way. I took yeah. that one away just in case you got really famous. I, I actually think I have a copy of that. I think you might have made two copies of it because I, I have that somewhere. But, you know, Mike was the first person to say in, in a very loving way to me, uh, I think you might have a drinking problem. And I, I will never forget that because um, you didn't shame me about it. But you said it with a sense of um, compassion for me. And you might have been. Was that the time that I f- fucked up your chance to have sex with a yeah, cheerleader? I was going to say that was when I took the Notre Dame cheerleader back to the room, and I could not arouse you to get you out. So I don't know that it was all that altruistic. Yeah, <laughs> I was just maybe hoping that wouldn't happen again. <laughs> yeah, Mike and I were not um, like. I wouldn't say we were successful with with women certainly in our first couple of years of college it wasn't like we had a lot of dates and were socially successful so mike having a chance to to fool around with this notre dame cheerleader way was out of my league way out of both of our <laughs> leagues and and it was um to this day i still sometimes will apologize and go mike because so, i was so drunk i he couldn't drag me uh, off the top bunk bed to get me out of the room so he could uh, um Get this, get this girl yeah, yeah, in there, whatever. but you know, <laughs> yeah, you didn't yeah. Let, let me live that down for a while. Um, I've gotten over it, but, I have. but there was something I felt immediately um, when we became friends. Uh, I guess it would have been our sophomore year, and maybe it was because we were both pre-med. But there was a, yeah, there was like a cynicism about the whole experience that we were going through because there was a lot of people around us that were like rah rah rah, you know. This fraternity is great. And then we were just kind of like, how can anybody think that this is something other than a place to get beer and get laid? Well, I think, you know, we I think in a very dysfunctional way, we, we kind of saw through that a little bit. Uh, we saw that, that uh, yeah, th- this fundamentally was not something to uh, attach to or, or to have a lot of faith in. Um, and I still feel like it was it it wasn't something that i fundamentally would you know have a lot of faith in but i'm gr- i'm i have gratitude that i met people like you through that uh house and and all that was worth it but i think uh and you and i you know we we actually talked about this today in the chairlift <clears throat> how similar our our backgrounds were um that and and may, maybe that's you know what we you know, drew us to each other, repelled us maybe at first a little bit because that energy was so strong, but then drew us together and, and we became pretty, pretty close for, you know, uh, co- college buddies and lived together a lot. Was that, and I, I think a lot of that came, you know, from the, uh, we had such similar, you know, fathers, uh, I, I think a lot of it, um, and, um, and, and households. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although know? I was so envious of your household. And by the way, we went to uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. We were there from like 81 to 86. We both went five years. Did I think I was there. I, I did a couple of victory laps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, your, the first time you took me 
um, Mike Mike is from Columbus, Indiana, which is about an hour away from Bloomington, where where the university right. is. And um, when we got to be good friends, you were like, "Hey, you know, I'm going home for the weekend. Um, why don't you come with? You can meet my family." And I just was struck by. Um, I wanted to be a part of your family because there was like laughter at the dinner table. You had a couple of cute sisters, and it it was just. I don't know. There was kind of a, um, there was just a, a, a kind of a life to it. There, there, there didn't seem to be like this tense silence. Right. Um, well, I mean, yeah, there were there were real connections there <coughs> in, in, in my family, no question about it. And um, and and I think part of what drew us together is we were clinging together on the life raft of craziness and chaos. You know, uh, my father, this brilliant brilliant gifted guy who was a seeker at heart but was pretty much ravaged by alcoholism his whole life and um, he was a general practitioner an internist general internist yeah very very good doctor but uh, i so so uh, we did we had a big boisterous you know just uh uh you know rambunctious five ro- kids all pretty close in age yeah rollicking sort of adventure of a life and uh it it those look fun on the outside and there there were moments of fun on the inside uh it's an interesting example of low how how a family can look from the outside versus how you know mechanically it's working on the inside and and what you take out of that yeah it was you know so idyllic um you lived on this lake kind of in the woods not in the middle of nowhere but um it it would just seemed like you know it's like something out of a, a storybook yeah yeah dogs like and chickens and lots of cars and bikes and a sailboat and yeah it, it was in small town a big fish in a small pond and yeah, we 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 look great, and people did people did enjoy people enjoy being around big families like that. And they, I was the oldest. I was you know Peter Brady, mm-hmm. uh, Greg Brady, Greg Brady, Greg Brady was the oldest. Yeah, I was totally Greg Brady. Everybody else was younger. So if I brought a friend home, they just sucked them up like a sponge. And I think that's what I like so much. When I sat down at dinner, it was like, um, I it, I don't know. It just felt like. Um, like people were paying attention to me. Not that my family didn't, but there was a a, a, a sense of fun, a, a sense of play that uh, that I think I was really jealous of. Um, what what were the talk about your family? What were the, the the kind of dynamics? Obviously, the big elephant in the room was your dad's alcoholism. Did you have any idea that your dad was an alcoholic at that point? Yeah, I think I realized it somewhere. Uh you know, when I was old enough to maybe put that together, um, I would say hard, it's hard for me to remember, but I, I would say it really began bothering me around age fifteen or so. And and what, what um, would you see, for instance? Well, you know, just uh, I mean, uh, he was uh, you know intellectually so gifted, and and so, uh, uh, but the unpredictability of, of that uh, was was pretty maddening. So. One dinner, we'd sit down, we'd have this incredibly engaging conversation, and you know, he may or may not probably had been drinking some beer, but but was was there. Other nights, you know, he'd be kind of three sheets to the wind and and sort of not there, not emotionally available, and um, uh, you know, uh, I, and so I I think I began 
uh, acting out, fortunately not in ways where I really uh, dug myself a hole, but I remember, you know, I remember going to, to cat, what is it, catechism, what's the school, you know, some Catholic school for teenage things and getting high in the parking lot instead of going in and coming <laughs> home. And I, I remember specifically one night coming home and, and, you know, I'm just high as a kite sitting there and my dad is, you know, drunk as a skunk and he's wanting to start this intellectual dinner conversation. He says, Mike, you look very insightful. You have something to say, you know. I'm just really high, Dad. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I think I sensed it then, uh, it, it's somewhere, you know, early high school. And and I, I think my first, you know, I think my first feelings about that were anger that I wanted it. I wanted it differently. And I remember looking at other I remember. Uh, 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 I, yeah, I remember some interesting things. Like I remember, you know, he was a very busy guy with a great career, very su- successful. And, and, and a lot of people looked up to him. Uh, but uh, I remember, you know, for instance, going to swim meets and, um, you know, uh, you know, I remember there was one guy, his parents were at every swim meet, you know, every single swim meet. And I remember thinking, oh, that's weird. Like, you know, that guy must not be very important. He must not be busy. I remember, you know, what a crazy thought the for dad, me to you have. Mean. The dad. Yeah. Thinking that the, you know, whereas my dad was, you know, I always thought was just too important, too busy, you know, too professionally, uh, uh, you know, uh, saturated with the tasks that uh, he couldn't come when when in fact that that wasn't the case at all but but now i think as uh, now that i am a father i think i i hate to miss any of that stuff and you and, have and you have four kids and that's that's a load oh, on your plate yeah. yeah it's all i do sometimes but uh but um at the same time i remember how interesting in hindsight thinking you know my 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 own view of the world was so skewed at that time that thinking well, that's really weird that guy's dad's right. at every swim meet that's yeah. creepy yeah <laughs> what the hell's going on there <laughs> you know and and, and 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 all that was was just a loving supportive father but that's to me that looked weird because i didn't get that you know um but you know but my your dad's I, drinking it, it it wouldn't interfere interfere with his job he didn't no, he was he, able to really. Uh, he somehow he was able to, you know, keep keep that wall of separation, and so that's probably what he thought is I'm I'm functioning here, and uh, you know, the, and he had kind of dragged the old sort of uh, uh, family uh, uh, structure in from his upbringing. You know, he was that transitional generation. You know, dads now are really. If you, I'm generalizing, but so many of them are so engaged with their kids and activities and coaching. And now you look up, and every dad's up in the stands. And uh, heck, they're watching practice, right? Too involved, but um, he, uh, uh, but but it, it, it's. I think he dragged that old kind of, you know, my job is to work, and I'm, I'll make a lot of people, but you know, it's my, it's my mom's job to, to you know, it was my mom's job to pretty much raise him, I think. And I'm bringing home the money. That's enough. Yeah, you, yeah I, you guys figure the rest of it out. I think out. so, and uh, that's not really fair. I don't want you know. I don't want to throw him under the bus. There were some great moments that we had together, and we definitely had an intellectual kinship because I, you know, was a pretty good student academically. I did well, and I was a, a seeker at that age already a little bit trying. And he was, he was, he was just so he was so sick that he mm-hmm. couldn't get at it. Um, and uh, and and I also got to hear a lot about his drinking from my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, that was uh, so even if I didn't necessarily even I didn't recognize it, 
You know, I think sometimes kids, when you're in it, you don't even know. You think everybody's dad drinks all night when they come home. So uh, uh, I think, you know, but I got to hear about the emotional uh, disconnect from my mom even before, you know, before that. Um, Just in case I, I, to make sure that I don't forget this, I want to interject that, you know, I've said that Mike is an interventional uh, pain doctor which means he deals with people that have chronic pain, and one of the things that he does is he will install morphine pumps in people's spines, a procedure that I can't imagine how complicated it is. And yet, it is me being impressed with that is always tempered by the memory I have of seeing Mike reach into a waste paper basket in college, <laughs> pull pizza crust out of it, and eat it. And I never let him forget it. <laughs> I'm a survivalist, Paul. <laughs> um, do you want to touch on your dad's family and, and any of the sickness there? Is is any of that kind of worth worth going into? Yeah, well, uh, uh, so, uh, I mean, there was what we discovered uh, later in, in life was that there was there was a history of, um, you know, some uh, uh, molestation. And and uh, uh, I'm not comfortable specifically naming who was involved with that, but there were people that I knew very, you know, was very close to. And um, we we put that all together later in our early 20s. And um, and so it was the it was and these were all females that were molested by a male, a male figure on my dad's uh, you know, parental side of the family. And so uh, when that came to light, that was uh, uh, that was an interesting period of time. And um, uh, that eventually was brought to my dad's attention, who I think was was horrified by that, um, uh, because I think you know he that's something he would have never that's a line he would have never crossed. You know, I think he he loved his kids uh, pretty dearly, as you know, and as and I think he that's not an area that he had a, a sickness, but it was it was in his lineage, and it definitely affected. Um, relationships on on downstream and and so uh he he directly confronted this uh this individual and there was denial and um you know I don't think it ever went any farther but but um but they had to know that he knew right well they they definitely knew that he knew because he directly uh spoke with them but even though they denied it the, oh. they they had to know right that, yeah. you know this is just me and you've described those grandparents before and it just made me so sad. They sounded like just the coldest, most kind of cut off. Yeah, well, there wasn't a lot of warm and fuzzy to them. Uh, yeah, they were just, you know, kind of post-depression babies um, and uh, or actually depression era kids. They, you know, that's I think let's see. They were born in the they would be uh, 100 years old now. So, uh, yeah, early, you know, late, late teens. 19 10 or 11 or 12 you know kids they, they they grew up in giant families you know irish catholic families with their 12 13 kids and uh boy i i've i've spent some time you know kind of just considering what must have gone on in that generation uh somewhere down the line you know there's some there was some darkness and and some some sickness that led to you know uh that kind of behavior where people blood relatives were were being molested and so um i'm i'm struck by the there's so many parallels in our stories but 
especially as you talk about that, you and I have never talked about this, but my dad, um, his dad was verbally abusive and one of his sisters um, claims also sexually uh, abusive. And my dad, like your dad, retreated to his intellect, was emotionally cut off and took great joy in knowing facts, knowing about the world, Mm -hmm. but was kind of sad and lonely in in that in that that being his god his intellect being his god um kind of cut him off mm-hmm. from from other people but i just i was just struck and he came from a family of like seven seven kids depression yeah. era yeah yeah and my my father uh uh he was an extraordinary person if you took him as a whole and 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 um, because I, you know, I've done a lot of work, uh, because of my relationship with him, you know, and, um, and he did get sober before he died, right? Well, yeah, he died of c- cancer and, uh, yeah, there was some, uh, forced, you know, kind of forced sobriety cause it wasn't able to e- eat or drink. But what was interesting is, um, at the end of, uh, his, um, uh, life, he, he sort of, he sort of found recovery and became a very and, and found the spiritual spirituality that was underneath all that. I, I had started going to uh, support groups uh, at that time to, you know, uh, sort of deal with with my uh, uh, feelings about about uh, his disease and, and and really look hard at how that had affected me. And so it was kind of this miracle where I was able to come to him with you know. Uh, pure love and and total forgiveness and 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 be able to honor him as as the man that probably he always could have been and 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 at the same time he was able to um, find this spiritual connection with me and tell me things you know that he had never been able to tell me and and so you like, know like what what were some of the things. Well, so right near the uh, end of his, uh, uh, so you know, we were literally in the last few weeks of his life, and uh, I had gone down when I realized how I had been fo- as a physician. I was able to, you know, really be uh, a good support for him, and and um, and he, you know, it was almost childlike how much he asked, you know, counted on me to to help him make decisions about his treatment but when it was you know when it was obvious that the the near the end was imminent um you know we he was sitting in a bed one day and um uh, and i was just there just kind of taking care of him just being of service to him and and feeling grateful that i was able to do that and just not have any harbor any resentment whatsoever and and uh and how good that felt cleansing for me to you know do that and he he just looked at me like he had never looked at me before and and uh just said tell me you know tell me about your job tell me what you do and i i started telling him what i do you know what i do in my work and just this like it, it was almost unbelievable I and mean, this is a man you know two weeks from death and and uh and and lines of wear and tear and you know kind of regret and just washed away on his face and he just looked at me and and just listened to me for like three or four minutes and and just said i'm so i'm just so proud of you i'm just you know in a way that he had never said it was probably one of the first time i'd ever felt that and i realized how much i how long i'd been waiting to hear that from him 
and I think you know that's my stuff that I need to, needed to hear that from him because I, I I think that spiritually I don't I don't want my to live my life needing that but it sure felt good to to hear that from him at that time you know um, and realizing you know all these crazy behaviors and stuff that had occurred over the years with, uh, that I took personally had nothing to do with me right. that underneath this was a man who who loved me so much. And later that night, um, or later that day, um, I just crawled right in bed with him, in, in his hospital bed, and he just he just held me in my arms. He held me in his arms and and uh, just kind of cradled me. And to this day, probably the most amazing moment in my life. And I realized how long I I my whole life I waited for that that moment. Of, of tenderness from him and being just held like a baby and him stroking me. And he wasn't worried. He wasn't thinking about his cancer or dying. I, he, he just wanted me to know that, you know, and it was a miracle for me to have that. Wow. <clears throat> That's beautiful. I mean, I'm just glad I didn't cry telling you that story. <laughs> it's hard not to. Yeah. It would have been okay. People cry on their show sometimes. Um, so what what were some of the dynamics with your dad having all those years not been present? I mean, I know because we've talked about it, but I just kind of want you to. Yeah, I mean, so I think anybody that knows about kind of the disease of addiction knows, you know, how can probably probably knows already what I'm going to say. But, yeah, I became yeah, I was already Greg Brady and I was. I think I was viewed as a superstar of the family anyhow, you know, good student, good athlete, you know, responsible, takes care of his siblings, responsible. Yeah. And, and, uh, right. I became a, you know, kind of a surrogate father, husband in that family. And, and, uh, I, I think the age was about 13 when I, when, um, you know, my mom began confiding in me about things because she didn't know where else to go. You know, she, she, she didn't know where else to go and, and uh, uh, didn't know how to find help. And, um, and I think um, that's kind of where I emotionally stopped growing. And I decided I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have to have a normal trajectory, you know, or, or, or the forces prevented me from having a normal trajectory of growth for a teenager. Rather, I became the responsible adult at that age and, and took – and, and you know, in short, just took the world on my shoulders, and and uh, decided I have to be able to figure everything out. And and if I couldn't, I could be pretty freaking hard on myself about that. And so I spent a long time <laughs> working through that, and I'm still you know working through that. And and um, so. And and I have uh, and, and the resentments of being put into that role. You know, um, do you remember consciously resenting your mom back then, or did it as you grew up and got into support groups and you saw that this was not a normal thing to be the confidant? Yeah, it wasn't until really my you know my dad became sick that all this came to a head, and I knew you know. About a year before he died, I knew I could not deal with that pain. But I couldn't knew I, I knew I could not deal with that pain of of losing him, uh, and all the the 
feelings and emotions surrounding alcohol, you know, alcoholism w- without getting that s- into those support groups. And that's when I began realizing. But no, did I know? I don't think so. I don't think I had any idea. And it, what's interesting, it was a driving force behind probably the driving force behind my life up until that point. But like so many behaviors, and as a physician, I'm in a unique position to get to observe this too because I I deal with people with acute pain, chronic pain. The families of chronic pain patients are patients I prescribe pain medication for. Some of those patients have addiction issues. Some Many times I know, sometimes I don't. So I've I've really got a front row seat for that whole process of, of that dysfunction, you know. But... Uh, uh, so I know that those behaviors that you learn, or that I learned when I was a teenager, they they didn't suit me as I became older. Uh, they they really became uh, really you know more of a, a character fault. And um, can you be more specific? Yeah. Well, uh, just uh, uh, needing to control things. Yeah, controlling. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, at age thirteen, when I was. You know, when the insinuation was that uh, I was the most responsible male in the house, I I, I began, I think I, I didn't have the tools in place, so I began to uh, go t- towards, uh, you know, sort of the default of control. I want to control this. I want to control that. Um, uh, much of that probably out of fear, you know, that, uh, hey, uh, I don't know what I'm doing but inside, but that fear of, you know, how— I can't, but, let, I can't let my mom down. I can't let her down. You know, I gotta, I gotta be there. I gotta be the guy. And uh, so, so yeah, control was a was a huge issue for me, and and um, and, and controlling every aspect of my life as much as possible. And, and then that turned into for me controlling, uh, you know, uh, even things that were wildly out of my control, like. Uh, like- Every little thing in life, you know, just having looking at somebody who's not, who who uh, isn't, uh, you know, operating under my sort of uh, belief system, mm-hmm. and 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 saying, "Wow, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, why is that person that way? That's not my belief system." So that's what my that's the evolution of my disease was. It grew into that. I grew into a control freak. You know, do you think? Inherent in that in the control freak is the egotistical belief that you really can get an outcome. Is it? Do you think it's? Do you think that egotism comes from being given that responsibility, which can be kind of a high from an adult? You know, when they look at you like you're an adult, you feel kind of important. But do you do you think that's that's where that that comes from? Because it, there's such an arrogance in in that sickness that you think you know and nobody else really understands the way you do. Yeah, I mean, I... Is, do you think it's more fear? I guess what I'm asking, do you think it's more from a place of fear that, that things are going to fall apart and you're going to enter this unknown void that's going to be terrifying? Or is it this arrogance that, well, hey, you know, if my mom made me man of the house when I'm 13, I must be pretty fucking special, so my way of doing things must be unquestioned. Hmm. Interesting. I think they're, you know, I think they're closely tied together, to be honest with you, because I don't, I think the the ego frequently derives its power from fear, and um, and so... Without really recognizing it. Right. I don't think it has any, you know... I don't think it has has, has uh, 
I, yeah, I think they're very closely tied, and I agree. I don't think that your ego knows it's it's the fuel, but the coal in the in the in the you know the oven is is fear, um, and uh, so yeah, and and there is a high. You're right. There's an intoxicating high, and there may be a, a sort of a component of addiction to that as well. As as uh, I remember, you know, uh, being put on this pedestal, being in, introduced to people, you know. You know, by my mother, so so you know, Doctor So and So, somebody you know that my father, who was also this physician, you know, in our community was kind of the upper echelon of this small town, and and that look of pride, and I thought, oh, I'm like you know, I'm the golden child, uh, both inside and outside the house, and and uh, yeah, that that was a lot to take to college. <laughs> um, that was you know, it's too much. There's no way that I could have continued at that level. That's well, I have to say, having lived with you all those years, you hit it pretty well from your peers. You, you, I knew other people, friends of ours, who were way more controlling and, and, and neurotic. Um, you, you never struck me as that type of person. So you, you, kept, you kept it hidden pretty well. So I think something for me that, that sort of uh, uh, tempered... Uh, you know this process of what I could have become in a place like college was I, I kind of uh, had a really great experience where I got to work at a in, in a kind of this unbelievable summer camp in the uh, in my late late teens and early twenties where I just lived with this group of uh, people all summer long and I got thrown in with these people and they the you know the philosophy of the camp and the owner of the camp um were was just very grounded and very a kind of a spiritual path and we were we became you know there was a big adventure component where we and and I had never so so intro, the introduction to the outdoors and living simply was brand new to me I was this kid from a pretty rich doctor's family and all of a sudden I'm living out in the cabin and stuff and 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 I loved it you know, I really, really drank that up, and I think that that altered my life substantially as I found things to sort of uh, grab onto that felt more real and and uh, and felt very, very wholesome, and I'd never seen that. You know, and people, and I was put into a situation where I was around people who were very kind of just loving and open and um, uh, accepting of everybody. And at that time, even, you know, just kind of was just sort of the tail end of the sort of the hippie stuff. So it was, but it was hanging on at that camp. And so it felt, you know, I think you visited and remember that camp. And it, it was wonderful. There were kids running around in war paint. There was no, it wasn't a tennis or a computer camp. It was just a kid's fun camp. Play. Just live outside for two weeks and you're going to sleep outside and you're going to play and, 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 you know, um, and you're going to swing off a rope swing and it's all about the joy of that of that moment so so seeing that was huge for me because up to that point at age 13 I pretty much gave up play I mean I played like I went and got drunk and swam in the lake with my friends and did some crazy stuff but it felt more like acting out maybe but truly like joyfully playing stopped for me you know right right there in my early teens and so there I I got into that and I felt like this whole world opened up where wow I, I can play and so when I left that and went back into the real world, and those guys are your best friends. Oh, to they're this to day. this day, yeah, they're yeah. some of my best friends. You know, uh, besides you, those are you know, there's three or four of those uh, men who I stay in touch with to this. Can day. you rank us numerically? <laughs> You're all one. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, yeah, so that was hard when I went back into a professional world. Um, 
uh, suddenly the the you know the drive I felt that drive to be you know sort of compete again and be the golden child and impress people and and impress my parents and and be and and so that that play thing became something that I struggled to keep back in my life and getting into medical school wasn't necessarily a no brainer uh, for you there was a, you know from what I remember there there was a little bit of difficulty getting into medical school originally well yeah so i had to, i hadn't set myself up well and i had to jockey for position for another year yeah to get in there uh, because i you know just hadn't really put in quite the effort and uh and so um yeah that was but uh but, but you know uh fortunately you know uh it, it did happen and um and then you know um uh that was the beginning of a, a you know a long a long course of time where you pretty much give up your entire mm-hmm. life and i think it's hard sometimes to grow spiritually when you're in training that that's that is that intense uh you're just so much it take it takes so much out of you that uh i don't know that there's a lot of uh time for attention you know self care um which which uh is unfortunate yeah i remember mike getting out of medical school and um, he went to medical school in, in Indiana and when he got out it would would have been like the late 80s uh, oh I got 90s. out of medical school early 90s yeah and I was getting ready to move to California and when I moved to California I selfishly wanted you to come out there so I kept pestering Mike to look for jobs when he finished his residency to consider sending some applications out to California. And uh, he and his wife, Karen, came and visited and were just kind of sold. Do you remember that that weekend he came out? <laughs> yeah, it was great. Well, the yeah, the interview, you know, we, we pretty much found out we were going to get the job. And I remember calling Paul. I remember you calling you that night. I, it was like 10 o'clock, 1030. 11 maybe you know when we finally found out and uh called you and you were there within like an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> you drove, i drove about 95 like a, miles yeah. an hour to to get down so there so excited to, yeah and we all so excited jumped up and down in that little uh in that room you know and it was right by the beach remember that mm-hmm. and we were all just uh yeah that was a big big change from the midwest and i can't imagine that you would have made that move if you hadn't had the the camp Pelawopec experience of connecting to the outdoors no no there's i don't think that uh right it introduced the whole concept yeah the, the camp uh uh and we called ourselves the peckers by the way yeah paula Wopek, peckers was short yeah. yeah to this day they probably call themselves the peckers but it, yeah it did it, it instilled this sort of spirit of adventure and and uh, i did i found strength through that that the the friendships and one guy in particular, a buddy of mine, Bruce, who worked there, I remember I was struggling over the decision because I had this incredible job all set up after I finished my training. and, and uh, Could have started making great money right great away money. in Indianapolis. Right. Great money, great great job, uh, everything. We had it all set up there. It would have been the easiest transition. And uh, uh, I remember struggling over this, knowing in my heart that this would have 
been you know that this would have been a sellout for me that i i you know i wanted more i wanted more for this you know i wanted more for my life i wanted to get somewhere close to you know the mountains or the ocean and and um and i looked for jobs in those places but pulling that switch was probably the first time i ever really really walked over the hot coals of fear in my life and and walked into the void and it was very 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 hard because I I was always looking for that solid ground because I'd grown up in this place of chaos and so you know control was all about trying to find solid ground when when it's it's you know it's just not there we really don't have that much solid ground in our lives and um and so this I had all this solid ground set up and I remember talking to this friend of mine Bruce and him saying yeah well I don't I don't know what to tell you and I'm sure not going to tell you what to do but he said I just if I were you, I'd worry about waking up in 10 years on a November day and, and looking at a 45-degree rain out the window and saying, what if, what if I'd moved out there to Southern California? Like, what, what would that have been like? And uh, uh, so, yeah, we made the move, and, you know, the rest is history. That it's, 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 you know, one thing has led to another, and it's worked out. But, but I remember that excitement of moving to – and when you grew up in the Midwest like you and I did, California's It's like Disneyland. It's a, yeah, it's a fantasy world. You yeah. can't – you literally can't even conceive of it. So, a, a place where you can ski and surf in the same day, it's mind-boggling. You can't do either in Illinois and Indiana. Right. And I don't think you even think that it's a place where you can live. I, I I don't think you know. For me, I don't think I even conceived that I could actually live a life there and have raise a family and do all that. I think it, it seemed like a magical world out there, you know. So yeah, we. I, I remember somebody told me, you know, do this before you get comfortable, which was great advice because getting getting too comfortable, oftentimes, for me, has cut off pathways that I perhaps should have taken it makes taking a chance much scarier because you're giving up more right exactly oh you know what that sound is it means it's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love our our sponsor this week is hover the hassle-free stress-free domain registration and email management site Uh, they got very low rates compared to other services it's super simple to register a domain name Um, i've registered domain names with other sites in the past and have been made to feel very stupid because they assume that you know what DNS is and what this portal is and I don't even know the words that they use but it always made me feel really stupid so I'm glad that there is finally a site out there that is simple to use and here's the really cool part about Hover is uh, their customer support you talk to an actual human being you don't get a robot and it's they don't put you on hold and they don't transfer you Uh, just suffice it to say I've been dealing with a software company uh, whose shit wasn't working for me today and I got some robot telling me that I need to to send a and there's nobody to call on the phone and through email they want me to send them my log file I don't even know what the fuck that is you know what I might do I might just mail them one of my logs that's what I might do Anyway, support Hover for supporting this show. Go over to hover.com slash mental and you can start enjoying the benefits now. Get 10% off your entire purchase with that domain name. That's 10% off at hover.com slash M-E-N-T-A-L. Thank you, Hover. Well, let's talk about your, your job as a as a pain specialist and what that involves. You know, the 
the part of it describe an average day for you as a as a pain specialist at first you were an anesthesiologist and then you decided to do a little bit more schooling and to learn how to be an interventional pain specialist Yeah, so it's called a fellowship so i did the four years of medical school and then i did four years of anesthesia training and then it's interesting that interventional pain management or pain management is a you know, bona fide subspecialty of, of anesthesia, but it's very, very different. It's sort of like people, you know, go into internal medicine and then become a dermatologist. It's very, very different field. Uh, however, uh, I did that extra year of training. And uh, so a, an, an average day for me is, oh, you know, I might, uh, 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 you know, go into work at eight and I, and I see, I, I usually divide my days in half days. So I, I'll spend half of the day doing spinal injections. So there are specific injections that I've decided I can diagnostically, you know, determine where pain comes from in the spine or I can or I can therapeutically inject uh certain medications into the spine and usually in the spine and, and, and help people with um you know acute and sometimes chronic pain as well. A lot of elderly people need these periodic injections because they really don't have surgical cures that are going to help them. And uh, and then the other half of the day is I'm evaluating new patients and seeing follow-ups. So I may I may see, you know, a handful of patients that have had injections and I check up on them a month or two later, how's it going? Are you are you also working on weight loss and you know, are you also doing some exercise? They want you to do these exercises, you know. Um and uh and then uh, I may see three or four new patients, new consultations that primary doctors send me. Some of them may be people with acute herniated discs. Some of them may be an elderly person who's got bad degenerative disease. Some of them may be people, their primary docs say, this 35-year-old guy has back pain. I'm, I'm writing Vicodin every month, and I, I'm kind of uncomfortable, getting uncomfortable because he always wants more and he needs more. Um, and, then, uh, and then I'll see a handful of follow-ups on those kind of patients who have come into my practice and are there continuously on a monthly to every other month basis. And we're writing medications usually for those people. Frequently, it's, you know, opiates if they're appropriate. So talk, talk about the tightrope that you kind of walk as a pain specialist, because some pain specialists get a, a bad rap um, because they overprescribe things. And I would imagine, as you, you know, we, you and I have had many conversations about this. You are a sanctuary for somebody that wants more pills, an addict that is going to exaggerate their pain. And how do you navigate that that tightrope of you want to serve somebody that has pain, but you don't want to be a sucker for an addict who is lying? Yeah. That's the, that's the toughest part of the job. I mean, one thing to remember uh, and that most people don't know this, and, and, and a lot of physicians forget this, is pain is essentially an emotional. It's a very personal experience that no one else can ever measure your pain, and there's no external measure of pain. It's 100% patient report. So an MRI doesn't tell you how much pain a patient's having. There's no study in the world that will tell you that. Now, sometimes we can get signs for people in the recovery room or something where, you know, they're laying there in their bed and their heart rate's ticking away and they're breathing fast. And we can say that 
that patient's probably having pain. So that's a kind of a, you know, a cardiovascular parameters that we can use. But especially chronic pain, it's it's 100% patient report. So anybody can walk into my office and say, I have pain. And and so you know, if you just think about that, it's there's no way to measure it, and you get your 100% patient report. It's really tough, and almost everybody is clutching an MRI, saying, "Oh, I got a disc bulge, or I got this, or I got that." Uh, you know, I got a degenerative joint disease. My doctor says I have you know I have you know bad uh, you know a little scoliosis in my spine, or or I got you know. Uh, spinal stenosis, which is narrowing the spine up in my neck. And, and um, those are valid uh, finding, you know, findings on those imaging reports taken in the context of the whole patient. But they've done a lot of studies on those, and actually they don't, they don't measure up very well with symptoms. They've, when you take those and you, and you match them up against patient symptoms, there's virtually no correlation, and that's pretty fascinating. So, um, yeah, you get patients come in, they say they have pain, and, and the job of, uh, for me is to have to put all that together. Is it, all right, do I believe the patient? That's a gut feeling, all right? And, and I'm pretty good at that, um, I think. You know, I get tricked and fooled, and, and uh, sometimes I buy a story that I probably shouldn't have because I, I want to be compassionate. But I think once you've been in the field a while, it's very hard to just be openly compassionate and believe every single story. Because if you do, you'll become a pill mill for for these patients. You know, they'll quickly that you know people that are abusing pain meds or selling them or misusing them in some form. We call selling a meaning diverting them. They're getting them and doing something else for them. They quickly figure out who are those doctors who are who are you know too easy, and and uh, so those people have been critically, you know, been highly criticized in, in some circles. And there was this recent series in the LA Times, you know, that focused very much on doctors that are outliers that prescribe too much and some of their patients have died. But I, I know a couple of those doctors by reputation. And actually, I think their main fault was that they were just, you know, they were too, too compassionate and they were duped by more people. You know, you're going to have a, you're going to sort of have a scale of people who are, you know, suspicious, maybe too suspicious of everybody, and other people that are just way too generous. And I probably am appropriately suspicious, but I try to believe people. But that's a tightrope. And then I always worry, you know, about uh, just, I, I, people are going to find me. And, and, and so when patients are needing more and more pain medication for their pain, uh, I have to kind of, I have to sort of put on this different hat of being, all right, now I have to be, I have to be real, real, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, well, not say suspicious, but I have to be very, very, um, conservative, uh, conservative and, 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 um, investigative about, uh, the different type of data that I have access to. Are they getting pain medications from other doctors? I have some means of looking at that. Uh, I have to do urine tests on these people. And so that, you know, that wasn't something I necessarily saw coming into it, that I would have to test people by urine, but it's become the culture of what I do. And, and most of the studies say you should be doing this, and you shouldn't only do it on people you suspect. You've got to do it on everybody. Because I've had nice little grandmothers and, and all the way to twisted mean people, and, and I've had, you know, uh, I've been fooled many times by dirty urines or people that come up dirty on their, on, uh, on their prescriptions. You know, uh, they, we find out that they're getting prescriptions from multiple providers. And, and in hindsight, most of them you can detect, but sometimes you get tricked, and so you just have to test them all. 
I'm you told me last night that there is no education about addiction for doctors in medical school and their medical training very little uh virtually none when i was in medical school and from what i hear nowadays it's 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 quite minimal um i mean in in general it's if you think about it one in 10 people are addicts addicted to something or have the addictive personality I, it's it's almost uh, unforgivable that we don't have more education about this. I and, can't I can't tell you how many doctors I've been to that are willing to give me a bottle of a hundred Vicodin, you know, for soreness. And it's like, what what are you are you? If I was looking to get high, that's crazy. Well, but remember five five to ten years ago, somewhere in there, there was this big movement of you know pain is tremendously undertreated and the hospitals all adopted this as the you know a, a new vital sign and, and and there was a lot of pressure on on physicians to treat pain more aggressively and uh hospitals in particular were really under the gun you know you gotta you gotta really treat these people with pain there was legislation the doctors are supposed to you cannot ignore a patient's pain uh and all that i i kind of i kind of i laugh at that slightly cynically and i say well, how do you know? You know, how and can it, you legislate that? Yeah, and so as a physician, I've had a lot of experience through my life, you know, understanding addiction and addictive behaviors, but also through my job, I feel like I'm kind of somewhat gifted being able to see, and there are patterns that you know you you can you can even academically start to learn. People that lose their pain meds all the time, the dog ate them, different behaviors that are almost always associated with abuse or or selling or diversion of the medicines. But but the 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 real bottom line is is that doctors, I think, in their training, don't get enough of this of this training, and and. Uh, and and it, it, as prevalent a problem as it is, and you know, kind of mental illness in general, it, it's it's really overlooked in in medical education. And you and I were just talking about this today. It's it's not. I think you probably still get the mental illness training of of uh, of um, things like schizophrenia and the big diagnosis that are well established. It's the nuances of mental illness where I see most physicians struggle. Uh, in primary care, people with borderline personalities, and and uh, where a large component of it is manipulation, and, right? And they do tend to be um, smart and and right. charming and clever. Yeah. And you know, people that don't understand addiction, they don't understand. Most addicts have been doing some form of acting their whole lives to treat their pain or their depression, or whatever it is. So you're coming into contact with somebody who is a seasoned pro at reading people and projecting what they need to project to get what they want. And if you don't have any experience with that from being in a support group or having somebody in your family that is like that, so you don't have that kind of spidey sense, man, you're up against you're up against a lot. Because I know that I could, I could go get as many pain pills as as I wanted to. Um, I, I've been to enough doctors that I know what I could say and how I could portray myself to to get it. And even I think even to a seasoned, uh, somebody who's fairly seasoned at it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so, you know, I used to lose a lot more sleep over that, uh, that I was part of that loop. You know, and and uh, unwittingly, perhaps, but uh, that I was part of it, 
And at times it made me kind of want to reject the whole field and go back into anesthesia or completely stop prescribing medications. But I do have patients, and, and a lot of them that I know get benefit from, from this. A lot of the elderly people, they're pretty straightforward. You know, they hurt, and, and they do. You've told me some of the know. conversations that people have that thank you, some of the older people that were yeah. in terrible pain, and they just tears in their eyes. They're thanking you for giving them a quality of life that they didn't have before. That's got to be incredibly gratifying. It is. It's wonderful. And I remember the first time I came home with some uh, lipstick on my shirt, and uh, and uh, my wife, she's a, she's not a suspicious person, but I, I walked in, and she got looked at, I said, it was an 85-year-old lady, don't worry, and so, <laughs> who hugged me after her epidural steroid injections. <laughs> Talk to me about the importance of attitude in people um, that you see as we were driving up here you were telling me this story about this this woman who had i think she was 94 or something who had yeah well so doing what i do i i get this incredible front row seat to the aging process which i think for a lot of us is ter- terrifying and culturally look at our culture we, we, you know, so much of our culture is driven uh, by the desire to avoid that, th- this inevitable process that we're going to get old. If old people had better abs, we wouldn't have this problem. Right. Just all it takes is more Botox and it's all going to be fine. Some crunches. Yeah. I don't care if you're in a diaper, crunch up. Well, I always get a ki- I always get a kick out of uh, you know the family that's really just just needling the eighty five year old about you know some little thing in their diet and they're eighty five. There's a reason that they're eighty five, you know, and uh, you need to you know you need to do this or take that herb and and and, and so not to just you know debunk all that, but but uh, you know it, it's it's uh, I, I see it as much more attitude, and so I get to. Watch how people age, and I'd literally had patients. Literally had patients from, you know, all right. Well, we'll say my seventeen to. Um, I think my oldest patient is ninety eight, and uh, and she's going to make it to a hundred. There's no question in my mind that she's going to make it to a hundred. Um, but I had a, a little lady the other day. I'm going pu- to push her down just to, <laughs> just to smite you. Well, you know, I I. I uh, I actually um, think that everybody it, it should get to sit down with with a delightful, you know, some uh, delightful individual in their nineties, somebody who's open, who's maintained that kind of seeker attitude, because it is absolutely, uh, uh, you know, transformative if if you really look and listen to what they have to say and 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 feel their energy, because the, the you know this is just an example. The other day. Um, I, I was telling you, I see patients, I see most people as they get older, what I see is I see them, uh, many of their behaviors and their and their uh, sort of uh, adaptive, um, you know, ways that they, or, or their, the ways that they function and, and, and adapt, you know, to, to situations. Like their body breaking down or? Well, more just the tools that they use to get through life and deal mm-hmm. through stresses. You know, I'm talking about more mentally um, and emotionally and how they deal with, uh, you know, change and how they deal with, you know, conflict and that. And they're open and they're 
curious and and they maintain sort of some uh, level of kind of hope and optimism and delight in in life for itself and uh, and and spirituality. I'm not talking about going to church, as right. you know. Uh, <laughs> when you and I talk about spirituality, it's not going to church. It's a, it's what what church is supposed to be giving you, uh, but but for a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of times it doesn't. But that when you know, so I see most people, and a lot of them unfortunately really close down and harden because they're fighting the process of aging. And uh, and I'm not being judgmental. It's more an observation that I so I see them. You know, some of them are quite angry and 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 uh, bitter about the fact that their bodies are shutting down and and they're dealing with pain. And um, I'm not saying that's easy to deal with, but. I occasionally get somebody in their 90s, 80s, 90s, who's just remained kind of this open thing, this open attitude and this delightful way that they view life. And and they're not they're those people are usually very non judgmental. They don't they haven't walked around saying, Look at that, that's not like I like it, you know. Everything doesn't have to to follow their belief system, which it's interesting because I, I, I find that encouraging I, as somebody who is trying to seek in my life um, and, and grow and be more open, be non-judgmental. It's pretty obvious to me that those people are way healthier, not, not just mentally, but physically, because those two are so close, closely tied together. It, it's, it's expansive. It, it's like they're still growing. And, and even though their bodies are getting old um, – they're still growing emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And so they tend to kind of cope with their stuff much better. And this little lady, she, she was walking and her, and her hip wasn't working right because it's arthritic and she's got a bad back and she's kind of limping. And she was sort of giggling about it as she walked through the room. And it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. You know, look at that hip. It just doesn't work right, you know. And I, I, I thought, wow, wow. <laughs> I mean, this lady knows she's never getting a normal hip back. And there's nothing I can do about it. And... She's just looking at it with amusement, like, yeah, this is happening, but nothing I can do about it. I'm going to embrace it. Talk, yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. And and so um, that's one of – I now view that as a real benefit to my job. And, and I, I find myself going into and looking at that a lot and, and deriving um, a lot of strength mm-hmm. from that. You know, yeah. is is looking at that, and 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 being having gratitude for the opportunity yeah. to get to meet with these elderly people. Yeah. So, does that mean you didn't fuck her? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> now I know I can't ever run for Congress. We're talking about me having sex with elderly people and doing mushrooms in college. Okay, no Congress for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Every once in a while. I, I have to just completely shit on the beautiful tone that has been set. And uh, <laughs> I, I, there was no way I was going to record you and not have one of those moments because you and I do it constantly with each other. I mean, one of the things that I love about you, many things I love about you, but one of the things I love about you is you will follow whatever tone a conversation takes. You can be sincere and you can be irreverent. And you know when to switch back and forth, when your buddy needs sincerity and when your buddy needs levity. And that, to me, is one of the greatest things to have in a friend is somebody that can not only sense when you need that, but can roll with it when you're kind of switching up, switching up gears. And um, the, you and I have laughed at some of the darkest shit. I'm not going to I'm not going to share it on this program, <laughs> <Please>. but <laughs> some of the the. the the inside jokes that that Mike and I have, um, I just I just love it. 
<laughs> well, right back at you, Gilly. Yeah, it's, yeah, I feel the same way. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing to have a, a, for me to have a male friendship that's lasted 31 years. Um, that's, and, and I think sometimes men don't have that. I know a lot of men that don't, I, I always felt badly that my dad didn't have long sustained male friendships because I think, you know, men are capable when we put down our guard and we open our hearts, we're capable of an incredible, um, connection with other men. And I, I think it goes way back. I think the native Americans were sitting in sweat lodges and that was, that was healthy male bonding. And, and we've kind of, I kind of feel like sometimes, it's hard to maintain that because there's a lot of things that disconnect us, you know, just and jobs it. and families and stuff. And Well, I know this last summer I went through a lot of shit and driving down to San Diego and feeling comforted by you and Karen. And um, you guys had let me stay for a couple of days and it uh, it really recharged my my soul. And it felt nice to not worry about how I looked in front of you, you know, about how much snot I had running out of my nose and how much I was crying or whether you were going to judge, you know, is he's being a little sensitive about this. You know, I, I just felt like I could, I could be myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a super important thing. If you can find two or three people in your life that you feel like you can collapse in front of without worrying about, draining them or being judged by them um that's a pretty that's a pretty important part of a a support network to to have and it's nice Mm -hmm. yeah i just wanted to remind you you still owe me some for the rent and the professional (laughs) fees from that weekend paul you haven't forgotten that right there there now i just had to poop on that I love, too, how since you've become a dad with four kids, how you use these words like poop and delightful, which like 30 years ago would have never been in your vernacular. But, you know, you being you being this you having uh, matured emotionally, you know, I feel in many ways like I'm still like a 20 year old and you're kind of this this person who's done all the uh, all the responsible things that 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 come with it, uh, you know, in, including not just uh saying whatever word comes to your mind but sometimes i ask my wife how, whether i'm a kid or an adult yeah that you, yeah. you get a little different <laughs> yeah um is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh we wrapped up no you know i just uh i'm honored that that we have uh this friendship and and um and this opportunity to talk and, and i I sit in amazement at what you do with your life, Paul, and this uh, this path that you've created. You know, I remember watching at the Frangy Pangy Room and do your first stand up, and I was just thinking a while ago how I could work this in the conversation. But I remember you making a joke about uh, uh, this is how far you've come. But making one of your big jokes was a joke about gay people. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I I can only laugh now because you're. You're somebody who's so non-judgmental and so embracing of people and and who they are and and uh, you know there's not a racist bone in your body but but uh, I, re- I specifically remember that and and laughing at that myself and now you know if maybe we've grown up in our bodies but in our hearts and our minds is where you know we've grown up together and helped each other along and and that that kind of joke would not even. 
it wouldn't know, be funny. It wouldn't be funny to us yeah. now. And and uh, but 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 on the, on just I remember you standing up in the the balls it must have taken for you to stand up. And, and in front of those people and coming coming from all you'd come from and uh i remember that i uh, feeling that excitement for you and and uh and then watching you know your career take off and what you became and and then now here you are in another chapter and and uh what's great is this is this is coming from the heart and that the best work does in my opinion always come from the heart and so well thanks buddy you know i i I truly believe that I wouldn't have had the courage to be in this field that I'm in if it weren't for that day that you said to me, I know you love stand-up comedy. I think you should enter this stand-up comedy competition. And so I took an acting class to overcome my fear of doing that and discovered acting and stand up and all this other stuff but it was you you could see something that i loved but but the fear that was standing in front of me and you gently encouraged me to to do that and i'm so grateful because i feel like i'm on the path that i'm meant to be on and i feel like um you had you had a huge part in that and Mm. and i never i never forget that so thank you yeah my pleasure, Paul. You know, that's what's just another story of how people, the reasons people come in our lives. You know, it's it's kind of amazing. Now go eat some pizza crust out of a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah, love uh, love my buddy Mike. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as as I did because as I was editing that, I was um, and I emailed him this and just was just like, man, you're. You're just a great example of a man, you know, uh, good dad, good husband, good friend. Um, wish I could get over that eating the pizza crust out of the waste paper basket. That is a bit disturbing. <laughs> um, what did I want to say? Um, oh, by the way, I liked, too, how, um, you know, that letter I read in the beginning of the show about how what I had said a couple of episodes ago was misinterpreted as misogyny. <laughs> In the middle of this episode, I talk about asking him if he fucked his 96-year-old <laughs> patient. Oh, Maybe I am a pig and I just don't know it. I don't think so. All right, let's, uh, before we get to uh, some, and I have quite a bit of... Um, surveys and a couple of emails to read because I'm getting some great feedback from you guys letting me know that you do like the the surveys and that um, I really love that I love how much feedback I get from you guys I just um, I could I could not do this show without without that um, I'm just not that intuitive or confident so I appreciate it when you take the time out to, to let me know what you like or like like the, um, the uh, fan did in uh, in the beginning of the show and was like, hey, you know, I, I'm i not too crazy about this thing you said. I appreciate that as well. Um, there's a couple different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. As I mentioned, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Um, you can support the show financially by going there and making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, the recurring monthly donation, uh, which you can do for as little as five bucks a month. You just have to set it up once and then it 
just keeps going until you decide to cancel it or your credit card expires. And if, can I just say how important that part of support of the show is to me? It's, it's like the foundation for me knowing whether or not this can be my full-time gig. And it just means the world to me when you guys when you guys sign up and um, become monthly donors because advertising comes and goes. It's I don't exactly have a, a ton of advertising slated for, for the next year. I mean, who knows? Things may change. But even if I did, um, I still really need uh, monthly donors. So fucking cough up. That's what I'm saying. Uh, you can support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. Um, you can also spread the word through social media. That's greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, don't underestimate how important that that is. Uh, when I get a, a new listener that says, oh, I heard about you on Reddit or read something on Tumblr, uh, I really appreciate that. Oh, that's the other thing I want to mention. If you go to, um, I created a Tumblr site where you can ask me questions and I will post the answers to them. Um, it's paulgilmartin.tumblr.com. And Tumblr, for those of you not in the know, is T-U-M-B-L-R. So, um, oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is next time you want to buy something at Amazon, do it through the search link on our homepage. And um, that way we get a couple of nickels. It doesn't cost you anything. All right. Onto the emails and surveys. This is from a, a listener named Luna who writes, I feel like your podcast has really helped me to understand men and the way men deal with depression and stress. I noticed that a lot of surveys you read that were filled out by men involve <clears throat> a lot of sexual shame. The poor, tortured guys who hate themselves for having sexual fantasies about power, rape, control, whatever. I really feel for them. There are women out there who are open about sex and kink and who would totally indulge those fantasies in the context of a loving relationship. I love, by the way, that she she clarified that because that's so fucking important that it's in the context, I think, of a, of a loving relationship or at least a trusting relationship um, where both parties are comfortable with it. Um, uh, she continues, just because your fantasy seems fucked up doesn't uh, mean it's not okay. As long as it's carried out in a consensual way or just not carried out at all, uh, my recommendation for these guys, if they want to talk to their partner about their fantasies, fantasies, bring it up like it's a cool, fun, sexy thing. If you talk about it like it's something to be ashamed of, girls will see it that way too. Um, I hope all these guys can stop overthinking their fantasies. They don't make you a bad person. And if you... And if you look, you can find someone who will dig it. I promise. As for the guys being jealous of guys with big dicks, honestly, I'm dating a guy with a small penis, and the sex is amazing. Thank you, Luna. This next thing I want to read is from the Shame and Secret survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself DJ. She's 18. She's bisexual, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic, um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Uh, I think some things happened when I was a kid, but I'm not sure. I try to confront myself about it, but I get this very uncomfortable feeling and shy away or brush it off. Um, but that's the thing that can be so fucked up is it can sometimes be this this ball that's just in there that's a feeling. And you know, I don't know whether or not it's real or imagined, um, but... I think it's worth exploring. That's 
That's my two cents. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I fantasize about my entire family getting into an accident or growing up without a family. Either way, it ends up with me being alone and feeling relieved that I have no family. Well, I think that would be a great place to start in therapy, talking about that. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. I used to cut myself. I don't anymore unless I'm feeling very overwhelmed. I have a problem with eating. Once I didn't eat for more than 17 days. I count calories like a madman. It's a habit I can't get rid of. Uh, I used to be an insane binger when I was younger, and I attempted to throw it up afterwards, but it never worked out for me. I eventually stopped binging, although it happens sometimes, but I also developed bad eating habits and would starve myself sometimes. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I fantasize about sleeping with one of my teachers, more specifically on his desk, as he is being dominant. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend these fantasies? Maybe. Personally, it's hard to tell anyone anything about myself. I'm very introverted. I'd just probably feel ashamed if I told someone my sexual fantasies, especially because it's about someone who's 20 years older than me and is my teacher. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? It makes me feel different than everyone else because I fantasize about a teacher rather than a boy or girl at school. Throughout these four years of high school, I've never really been interested in anyone romantically except this teacher. It just confirms that I'm very different than most people I know. You are not very different than most people you know. That's an extremely common fantasy. I read that one all the time. The fantasizing about an older person in a position of authority. Um... This next survey is, was filled out by uh, actually um, a, a listener who I've corresponded with before, and I think she's filled out surveys before, um, and uh, she calls herself Marlene the Psych Nurse. She is um, in her 30s. She's bisexual and was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. I reported it to my mother, and she called me a liar. The abuse continued for many years after. She still thinks I lied. Few things break my heart more than that. That is, man, that is just the one-two punch to somebody's soul and self-esteem. When they go to a parent, why would they Why would they make that up? Now, I know there's the 0.001% of the population that does make that up. For, for whatever reason, I don't know. But, my God, why would you not believe your kid? You know, or at least investigate. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I am bisexual, so I have many fantasies about women and being in control of them sexually. I also have fantasies that I'm vi- with very strong and manly men. My husband is not a strong man, and he is not very sexual, so our sex life is as vanilla and boring as it could get. Deepest, darkest secrets. I think about causing a great amount of physical pain on my mother and stepfather. Torture, beatings, reenactment of trauma they caused me. When I was a child, four years old and on, I was sexually molested by my stepfather, father, step-grandfather, and a neighborhood friend of my brother. When I got a little older, my stepfather started to chase me around the house trying to catch me so he could beat me for not going along with him. I told my mother and asked her for help. She called me a liar, which caused the abuse to continue for years. I've recently started medication and some therapy, so I'm filling this questionnaire out again. I believe that my main issue with depression and rage is with my mother. She sacrificed my safety and my well-being just to keep drama out of her life. The ultimate display of cowardice and selfishness. I feel so betrayed and hurt. I can barely explain the depths at which I'm hurt. 
I wish my Asperger's would make it so I didn't feel these feelings. I have nightmares where I dream that I seduce my father and stepfather, something my mother said that I probably did to encourage the behavior. She told me no one gets abused by that many people. You must have started it with them. I swear, I, sh I wish she would just be brutally raped so she knows how it feels. Um, you know what's um, interesting? Well, besides this being so heartbreaking um, to read that that, that, that happens to, to somebody and, you know, clearly not the only one that I've read of this happening to, um, I've, I was just uh, corresponding with, with somebody today, a listener, who was beating herself up because she wakes up from dreams where she is instigating sex with her abuser and she wakes up frightened and turned on at the same time. And so, you know, I, I shared some stuff with her in, in an email um, to kind of let her know that that's how human beings sometimes process stuff. To go back and get some kind of semblance of control um, is we're the initiators, and that doesn't mean that we wanted it or we liked it. And I know this comes up a lot on the podcast, but I think it's such an important thing to stress that get ready for me saying this for the next 25 years. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, as I said before, thinking about other women, brunettes with huge breasts and curvy waists and hips. I want to both be someone who looks like that, and I want to have sex with someone like that. Do you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? No, I don't share things like that with other people. I've tried to explain to my husband about our boring sex life, but he's mainly just interested in getting his rocks off. When it comes to me, he doesn't really care if I get mine or not. Most boring sex partner ever. Sounds pretty selfish too, you know. That that, that sounds like zero intimacy, and uh, that's a bummer. To these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself, I don't think poorly of myself for these thoughts and feelings. It is was it what it is, a fantasy. It will probably never happen. Um, and then I just have to read this. Any comments to make the podcast better? She writes, Paul, you are fantastic. I have little papers I carry around in my pocket at work that have contact info for this podcast that I pass out to certain patients at our clinic. I'm a psychiatric nurse and community mental health. Most of our clients can't afford therapy or they don't believe it works. That's when I break out the podcast and tell them to check it out. I've gotten many people who get back to me and say how appreciative they are for the recommendation. Keep it up. That just, um, just warms, warms my heart. This is also from the Shame and Secrets. I think all the, all the surveys uh, are from the Shame and Secrets uh, that we have left. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself WC. He is gay. He's in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. A lot of my sexuality is tied up in ideas and images of humiliation and rape and bondage and darkness. I've conditioned sex to be intrinsically tied with violence from my early teen years. I don't have much sexual experience, and it's to the point that I don't think I could ever be in a loving relationship, a loving sexual relationship. Sex for me is about degradation, and I feel like I could never love someone and be sexual with them at the same time. Sex would be about mistreating them, and I don't want to do that to somebody. Um, 
Let me read this other part for uh, next. The deepest, darkest secrets. I will spare the specific details, but the way I taught myself to pleasure myself sexually growing up is not really the correct way. And I've been doing it for so long that I don't know how to get off in a normal way. First of all, I would stop you and say, is there a correct way? Is there a normal way? You know, we're such a huge continuum um, of experiences and expression. Um, I think you should stop thinking of your sexuality in that way and start thinking about how it makes you feel and whether or not it's a healthy expression of your feelings and trying to consider having your emotional needs met in the future. Because I think if our emotional needs are being met, how we express our sexuality um, tends to to fall in line um, in in terms of how we feel about it because um, I don't know how to explain it other than that but it's it the emotional connection to somebody I think kind of needs to be the meat and potatoes and then the sex can kind of be the dessert whereas I think if we make what gets us off the meat and the potatoes of our emotional life um, it's really hard for an emotional connection to people to just be an afterthought. Um, then we tend to burn through relationships, get really excited about people, um, and then get disappointed six weeks into dating them. Um, and I think when you see people that have been married like nine times, that's the classic example of the, I don't know, the horse before the cart or some other fucking tired old I'm going to start saying fellas by the end of this. Um, and I hope that woman knows that I'm kidding when I was when I was laying into her about uh, about that. I just find that to be a very funny, funny word. My uh, when I do my congressman character, uh, he loves to use the word fella and uh, and gals loves to call the women gals. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to him. Uh, the majority of fantasies I have or images I seek out involve men being abducted or taken advantage of. Um, it seemed like I need to be clear that it's not like I have explicit fantasies of going out and doing this myself, but it's more just the idea of it. Um, ever consider telling a partner close friend? He writes, I've never been super open about anything with anyone. And, you know, I think, I think that would be the place to start. And I'm not saying go find somebody you barely know and open up about all this shit, but maybe start with a therapist. Maybe start with a support group for sexual compulsion. Um, you know, I don't even know if you belong in that, in that support group, but investigate. Um, instead of writing yourself off as, you know, this creature you seem to think you are, I, I think you're just a, a human being that's, that's dealing with, uh, emotions that are really intense and, you just need to find a way to, to channel them and, and be more accepting of, of who you are. If you're not hurting anybody, dude, more power to you. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I sometimes feel like I must be a sociopath of some kind uh, if this is what I feel stimulated by. But I guess they say no one who is worried they are a sociopath actually is one. Well, I'm sending WC. I am sending you a really, really big, big hug. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Renee. She's straight in her 30s, uh, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, 
deepest, darkest thoughts, I wish I could disappear, simply cease to exist, just lay on my bed and fade away. I don't consider it suicidal, as I've never contemplated how, and I always know, even in my saddest moment, that I couldn't hurt my family that way. That is one of the most common things that I read about deepest, darkest thoughts, um, is people just want it, they get, want to get in a car and just leave it all behind and start a, a completely new life. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. I am so incredibly hard on myself. I'm not proud of my accomplishments or value what I bring to the world. At the same time, I try so hard to be perfect, to be a good person who makes the world better. At least for some of it, I blame my body. I'm not skinny. Definitely a plus-size girl. But I don't eat a fucking pack of Oreos a day like some horrible joke about the disgusting, lazy, sweaty, fat girl. With girlfriends, I tend to be self-deprecating about it. But in my heart, I think no one likes the fat chick. I struggle with trusting that my friends truly care about me. If I didn't suggest the plans, then I wouldn't be included. It pains me when a friendship fades away without a reason and I blame myself. Did I do something wrong? Um, I was unlikable. I imagine the worst case scenario when anything comes up. I take it personally. And when it comes to romantic relationships, I've given up. I never try sex. Um, I never try. Sex? Please. Being overly sensitive about my body breeds sexual repression. No one wants to fuck the fat chick. Uh, by the way, you are wrong about that. Um, men are turned on by a variety of body shapes and sizes and that is i'm going to be a little uh a little harsh here with you that's you feeling sorry for yourself that's you um falling into the trap of of self-pity am i saying it's easy to get laid no i'm i'm not saying that but it is not impossible to find a guy that will be attracted to you and I think even more important than what you look like will be the vibe that you give off. And I think if you walk around, eyes downcast, giving off the, the feeling that, that you're worthless, it's going to make it hard for somebody to want to be with you because your, your self-hatred is standing between you and that person trying to connect to you. And they can only tell you so many times, you're lovable. Um, I like your body. It turns me on. Um, you know, t take a guy's erection at face value. You know, if his penis is erect, something's working. And if it's not, it, it, you know, it might be on him. All right, she continues. Uh... I always assume that I will end up crushed. Another story of foolish, unrequited love. So I've spent years avoiding it. Why bother to try? And then when, despite my avoidance, I do like someone, it makes me miserable. I feel like I'm constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like him realizing how I feel and then I see skid marks as the trail he burned away from me. Um, so I will hold my feelings inside, never admit to him and remain alone. Alone is better than rejected. But I never pictured this as my life and it breaks my heart. I couldn't tell you the last time I considered myself happy. I swear I am paying some karmic retribution in this life because I was a serious asshole in my previous life. I get the feeling that with some therapy and maybe some support group work, you would be shocked at how quickly you might be able to get some self-love, get a little bit, bit of confidence. And I tell you, you know, no matter what your body shape is, if when you take your clothes off, you really feel that you're sexy, it's sexy. It is. 
Um, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful? This is my fucking hurry. That's still that thing that I think that I'm keeping you. And you've emailed me and you've told me you're not keeping us. We like the longer episodes. I might just read it extra slow now for the next hour. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Given my sexual repression, I tend to just imagine I'm someone else. Someone prettier, someone desirable, someone not me. Would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend? I doubt it because I'm a very close I'm very closed off on this subject. I don't discuss it with friends, and clearly there's no partner. You know, God, I just think getting into a support group with people who think and feel like you do would be so healing. It would be so healing. Because um, you can't force that kind of intimacy. You know, it sounds like your friends aren't easy to get close to, and maybe, maybe you need some different friends, some friends that have experienced what, what you've experienced. Nothing brings you closer than similar similar pain or setbacks in my experience this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself hyper shut down he's straight in his 30s uh, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional about his being straight he qualifies i'm probably about 90 percent straight i'm rarely attracted to anyone not female though i do seem to be attracted to the penis itself um I gotta admit the penis does have a certain charm, but I feel like the scrotum is its like its ugly friend that tags along and is the is the deal killer. It is it is just God bless anybody that can put their their tongue on a ball bag because it uh, said it before it just looks like it needs ironing. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. My sex drive kicked in somewhere around the start of fourth grade. I have a strong sex drive, and it runs in the family. And I recall playing hide-and-go-suck, no movement, just put your mouth around it for a moment, uh, with my older brother. But I think I came up with the idea. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I wish I lived in a world where everyone could enjoy any type of sex, where all participants enjoyed themselves without stigma. I don't seem... uh, I don't seem to any of the natural icky reactions. Oh, I don't seem to have, he left the word have out. I don't seem to have any of the natural icky reactions that people have, except when it comes to scat, injury, and unwilling participants. This extends to things like incest, zoophilia, pedophilia, etc. And I'm certain that if people knew to what extent my fantasy has included things like this, that I would be rejected by many of my closest friends. Deepest, darkest secrets. Up to a certain age, I used to try to see what friends of mine were willing to do uh, sexual things together by playing truth or dare. They were male friends, and I wasn't attracted to them, but wanted to do sexual things as often as I could. As an adult, I fooled around with dogs a bit, though nothing beyond foreplay and no commands or tempting with food, as I don't want to be coercive. I have stopped all such activity, not because I think it's wrong, but because it's totally unacceptable. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Probably the idea of either being a sexual servant to my friends in a subservient way, but not in an abusive or insulting way. Another one is the sort of situation where though I'm the center of attention and am played with by a large group of people and brought to many intense orgasms, um, in this setting, some abusive talk is okay, but stuff that's more uh, talking about my sexuality rather than being outright mean. Because of this, I tend to watch some porn that would be considered degrading to women. 
but I'm imagining myself in the women's role, um, even holding my breath during deep throat penetrations. Do you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Not anyone I know, but I can see myself being open with someone I knew was into strange porn. And maybe stop calling it strange porn. You know, maybe call it, um, I don't know. I don't know what the word would be. Maybe not. Maybe don't label it at all. Secrets and thoughts. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I don't feel bad about the thoughts and secrets themselves, but I have ended up hiding my sexuality since I haven't. Since I've seen that even something as benign as incest between fully grown adults uh, creeps people out, like people dating that later find out they're related. Um, well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, hyper shutdown. I appreciate that. I appreciate all your guys' honesty. Um, this is also from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Harbinger. She's gay. She is in her 20s. She was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Um, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I have problems with my gender identity. When I look at guys, I feel terrible. Lately, it gives me intrusive thoughts. The urge to stab myself in the neck, or I imagine something like a spear just going into my skull. I can almost feel it and see it. It's an urge, not just an idea or image. My friend asked me if I want to be like the guys, and I told him it's so much deeper than that. I could want to be, quote, like anybody who is cool or hot or more successful than me in any way, but this um, is more as if, well, it's as if my life is a bad trip. It feels all wrong. It's very disturbing, like a horror movie. It's something I feel in my gut, as if I'm witnessing something horrific, but it's inside me, a distorted reality. Okay, imagine looking in the mirror one day and seeing someone else there and how fucked up that would feel. Insane, demented, horror show. That's what my existence feels like. And seeing guys just reflects to me what's wrong in myself. How do you kill something as horrific as that? You would have to kill yourself. I think about being a guy every day, and sometimes I feel um, bad like this, like this. but more often, it's a pleasant fantasy. The thing is that during my day and for most of my life, I have been okay with adapting to femininity. I want to look nice when I go out, and that means wearing makeup and female clothes. I have a very female body, by the way. It's at night, and when being out and about or watching movies that I get upset. I'm afraid to tell anyone except my best friend these things because I don't want anyone, uh, I don't think anyone would understand that becoming transsexual would be completely wrong for me. It would only remind me more often of what I'll never be, a real born male. I would only be more miserable. I know I need to minimize my thoughts about being a guy and live my life as accepting of my condition as possible. Not to mention, I'm disabled and probably can't go through what it takes to transition because of medical issues and my fundamentalist Christian family would, well, it would just be the end of the world. Not worth it. I wish I could find a shrink that I knew I could trust to understand. Right now, I don't trust anyone. On top of being disabled slash ill, I have PTSD. That's a whole other story, as fucked up as the first. Maybe another day. Thanks for doing what you do. Um, uh, I just want to. I just want to send you a big, big bouquet of of love and um, 
and compassion. I can't imagine what, um, how difficult that must be to have those thoughts and feelings every day. And I, I really, really hope that you can find um, a professional to talk to or someone that can help you move forward in whatever path that, that may be. And I would say don't give up on that. You know, Keep searching online. Um, I think every day there are more and more support groups and resources for people that feel as if they're, they're in the wrong body. Deepest, darkest secrets. This has nothing to do with the previous topic, but in my 20s, I continued the cycle of abuse I inherited from my father and his mother. It was the strangest thing to happen, to realize I was behaving exactly like the person I hated most. I don't hate him anymore. I love him, and he's a good dad now. I am ashamed of the fact, but also proud that I did very hard work on myself to work through those issues and ensure that I will never do such things again. The person I victimized says she is fine and never thinks about it, and for that I am lucky beyond words. This confession is for people out there who think they can't open up and fix the abuse they have done to others. You can fix it. You can get forgiveness not only from others, but from yourself. I have forgiven my dad, he has forgiven his mother, and our family is happy and very close now. Oh, that is so beautiful. I forgot about that part of this uh, of this survey. Um, that is that is just so beautiful. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think uh, about a lot of wild things, and I'm not ashamed of them. Uh, ever consider telling a partner, or close friend? I've told my best friend. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Sometimes I feel disgusted, but then I will tell myself to shut up. I know my, de- my desires are not bad. Good for you. Right on. Digital high five across the internet. Um, and this last one is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Iona. And she is uh, between 18 and 19 years old. I guess that would make her 18 and a half. She writes, I had nothing to do this evening, so I went for a walk. I was listening to the uh, podcast when a woman got my attention. She asked me if I played basketball. I was wearing a basketball hoodie. I said, yeah, I play for fun, recreationally. She then said uh, to keep working at it, and it made me smile. Then she said I had a beautiful smile, and it wasn't in a creepy way or anything. She seemed to really mean it. I said thank you and smiled some more. Then she said, God bless and Jesus loves you. Even though I don't believe in Jesus and I'm not entirely sure I believe in God, it was still nice because they mean something to her and she was using them in a positive way. So I figured at that moment it didn't matter what my views or hers were. She was just trying to be nice. I said thank you and told her have a good evening. I tried not to think about it too much other than thinking about the energy we give out uh, for the world to see. I don't think I realized how much negativity I was sending out just by the look on my face when I was walking and a total stranger was not only able to notice but to help me notice my own negativity. If that isn't a clear enough sign from the universe, I don't know what is. I ended up walking for almost two hours and the whole time I kept thinking, I never want this feeling to end. I love that. Thank you guys so much for continuing to support this uh, this endeavor and um, sometimes it just leaves me speechless it just absolutely leaves me speechless um, how lucky I feel to have found 
a way to turn things that were negative and painful in my life into things that help me connect to other people. And I, and I hope if anything, that's, that's what people get out of this podcast is the hope that what they've been through doesn't have to be for naught as, as long as, as long as they're willing to reach out and ask for help and realize that nobody's ever really stuck um, unless you decide that you're, you're stuck. So remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.